This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. Dr. Erica Avrami's research and publication on preservation policy is helping the movement reframe the way we think about our work and helping to suggest ways of improving our efforts as we confront the legacy of preservation and the need for more equitable, sustainable, and a just world. Topics of conversation that I felt would be of great interest to all of our PreserveCast listeners. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're excited to be having a conversation with Dr. Erica Avrami, who is the James Marston Fitch Assistant Professor of Historic Preservation at Columbia University, um, a preservationist and a planner and uh, a thought leader on preservation and policy. We're going to be talking about all those things and how they all come together. But before we get there, um, it's always fun to kind of know a little bit about the person we're talking to. So... Tell us a little bit about your background, your upbringing. You know, was there a spark that led to this? And, you know, we'll talk about your education and stuff, maybe first job in the field, all that good stuff. But but what's the what's the backstory of you and how'd you get into all this? So I can't say it was really a spark, but more like a, a confluence of forces that date back to my childhood. Um, my father was a military history buff. He served in the Army Air Corps during World War II. He was educated uh, through the GI Bill. He went on to work for the Department of Defense for more than 30 years. Um, And as the son of immigrant parents, my dad's military service was really seminal to finding his place in the arc of the American narrative. And so childhood road trips uh, usually included visits to important battlefields, war cemeteries, military forts. So I learned about the power of landscapes and architecture from a very early age. Uh, and, and kind of in, in parallel to that, uh, when I was six years old, my best friend's parents purchased an historic 10-bedroom Victorian home and painstakingly restored it over the next decade. And that house was a never-ending construction site and our favorite playground. We would follow the roofers and the masons and the plasters around like fangirls. And the history in those walls was really a constant fascination that drew me to architecture. So in high school, I, I took a mechanical drawing class and somehow managed to get an after-school job at a, at a local architecture firm. And then I went on to study architecture and political science in college. I did an internship with the National Trust in England the summer after I graduated, and then it's all preservation from there. And where did where did you grow up? I'm not sure we heard that part. Where, I grew up where are you in from? New Jersey. I grew up in New Jersey. Yes, and I still I actually live in New Jersey now. So, um, and uh, and ended up going to college in at Columbia in New York City. So you kind of bounced all around in terms of where you were, and you were at the National Trust over in the UK. Um, what was your actual first job in the field? Was it was it over there, or where? yeah, it was. It, I did this summer internship that was sponsored by uh, US ECOMOS, the International Council of Monuments and Sites. So I did that the summer after I graduated from college, um, and then I came back, and I was very privileged to work in city government on some historic rehab projects. Uh, worked in private practice for some preservation architects, and then uh, entered the not-for-profit world. And I spent most of my career in the international heritage arena with the Getty Conservation Institute and World Monuments Fund. 
Um, but then late in life, I decided to return to school to do a PhD in planning and public policy. Uh, and that is what eventually led me to academia. And so today, professionally, you are a professor of preservation. What kind of courses are you teaching? I teach courses uh, on planning and policy, uh, sustainability, uh, on international policy as well. Um, But I also focus a lot on studio work, community engaged studio work with students where they're sort of co-learning and co-creating knowledge about the places uh, within generally the New York landscape, but I, I, we've also done international studios, working in partnership with other uh, universities and institutions uh, to really kind of interrogate and think creatively about what preservation means in, a, in broader geographies and across uh, diverse publics. Yeah. And critical, too, is somebody who hires people out of graduate programs to have people who have had real on the ground experience. Sometimes there's there's sort of that that challenge if you get somebody who's just gone through the academic side and then you're like, okay, well, this is how it actually works here in the field, which is a little <laughs> bit different. Um, but, you know, before we even hit record, I was saying, you know, it's exciting to talk about policy because I, I try and think about it a lot and I try and stay up to date on it, which I know a lot of my colleagues do as well, because I was sort of joking that I'm trying not to screw things up. And there's a there's a long legacy there of preservation kind of not always getting it right. And you've written, you know, extensively on this as of late with a particular focus on policy, the legacy of those policies, ways of improving it. I'm curious, kind of given all that you've done, the international side and, um, you know, your upbringing and and the academic piece, um, is there a common thread to the kind of research that interests you right now? And and what might that be? Right. So um, it might help to kind of frame how I look at policy. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, it means different things to different people in the heritage world. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I tend to focus on policy as a form of public policy. Uh, so when a municipal, a municipality or a state or the federal government takes the decision to designate or list something, um, it has social and environmental implications that extend far beyond just saving that building or that site, right? And so I, in that broader realm of public policy, what I try and push against is the field's tendency to kind of think about our work on a site-by-site basis, right? It's each place is different, each place is unique, we need to preserve it. Um, But looking more at the systemic dimensions of policy, how governance and institutions center and perpetuate um, certain ideas about how to preserve and what to preserve, and in doing so, center certain narratives and power structures. Uh, So that's sort of how I look at at policy. And then um, in terms of the threads, I think um, the core thread in my research is really about social justice. Who is represented? Who participates? How do they participate? Who benefits or not? from the preservation enterprise? And how do we understand and confront the complex histories of exclusion in landscapes and in architecture? And then layered on top of that social justice question is the climate crisis. As we adapt and decarbonize the built environment, including the historic built environment, we run the risk of repeating and reinforcing legacies of privilege and disprivilege. 
if we aren't mindful of historical inequities and their impacts. So for example, the relocation of Alaska Native communities due to sea level rise is part of a long history of government-supported land dispossession and racism. Or in some urban areas like New York City, where historic districts tend to be whiter and wealthier, will government priorities for or investment in neighborhoods, you know, in, in climate adaptation, um, further privilege or disprivilege certain publics if, for example, we prioritize historic neighborhoods for adaptation. So those kinds of layers of, of understanding and layers of who's been privileged or disprivileged, um, I think, are really important as we confront the climate crisis. So it's that social justice foundation with the, the climate crisis layered on it. So just slightly complex. <laughs> it's just 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 issues of social justice and the climate crisis. So um, it's pretty <laughs> simple, easy to easy to comprehend. No, I'm I'm joking, but I mean, you know, it's interesting because we've had um, Bonnie McDonald on from Landmarks Illinois, uh -huh. who runs that program out there, and I know that they kind of grappled with this question several years ago about our preservation organizations. Should they be social justice organizations as well? Do we have a social justice function as a as a nonprofit statewide or, or citywide or regional organization or national organization for that matter? Um, and I don't think that there's clear agreement around that. I'm curious what you think. I mean, are they in the business of it? Is it or should it be part of the charge where do you fall on that? I'm just curious. And I know this is sort of off the cuff, but I'm just curious. I know, and I was one of Bonnie's interviewees, so I, I, um, I've, I, I, I'm wondering whether this answer will be the same as what I gave her. <laughs> but uh, I, I, you know, one of the the, the things that I, I often say about preservation is that um, we tend to rationalize what we do on economic grounds, like there's so many studies on, on how, you know, this is really cost effective and it, it helps make money and we have, you know, impact um, assessments uh, and other ways of demonstrating how the tax credits and other things really infuse money into communities. We have some environmental, um, environmental research as well to help rationalize the work of preservation. But at the end of the day, it's social. At the end of the day, what we do and why we do it is so driven by social issues. It's about how we encounter our stories as a collective in landscapes and in the built environment. It's about how we interpret those stories, how we understand those stories, who those stories represent. Um, and so I, I, I don't think that that can be divorced from questions of social justice. Right. Because, again, because I'm a policy person and because I look at policy as public policy, we are accountable to the body politic as preservationists. We are making choices about what, sh you know, how history is represented in the public realm, how we see it from the street, you know, how we walk through it. Um, and it, that is a huge responsibility. And I think that if we don't acknowledge the social justice ramifications of that and incorporate it into our work, we're, we're avoiding a central 
tenet of why we do what we do. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. I mean, even like a simple, silly example of the way in which a lot of preservation groups even portray their message. A lot of times for a very long time, it was just pictures of the buildings. There wasn't even people in the pictures. And that that always strikes me as sort of a perfect sort of concrete, just biased example of how they perceived the work. Um you know, you don't put people in it because the, the it's about the building, right? But in reality, like what you're talking about is what's the point of preserving a building if you're not doing it for the people who have to interact with it, right? It's it's not just for the building's sake. Um, yeah, I think I think it's fascinating. I think I agree with you. I, so I'm curious, um, given all this kind of research and the, the extensive research and publications, have there been things that really surprised you? Are, are, are in what you've found, um, either in a good or a bad way? Well, um, a couple of things. One, I think, uh, you know, at the core of preservation is that intergenerational transfer of knowledge and experience, right? Especially spatial experience as a way of understanding narratives and stories. Um, and so that to me suggests that we as preservationists are keenly aware of how um, how the implications of our work play out over time. But we don't spend a lot of our resources and energies on actually looking at how our work <laughs> impacts communities over time. Um, and so I think that is always surprising to me that um, our the reflection on our past, again, as a field of policy, that's really only been around for, you know, the last century, if not in a more robust way, half a century, um, that we're not willing to really test and interrogate that further and to improve it as we learn more. Because we, you know, we always talk about sites that they have these aggregated histories and we we accumulate you know importance and value over time but the same can be said for how policy plays out across geographies and publics and the more we learn over time we should be feeding that back into our 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 formulation of policy and, and our implementation and i think that for me um becomes really poignant around the question of climate uh, and particularly the way in which the preservation community continues to categorically rely on the rhetoric of the greenest building is the one already built without investing in the extensive research needed to fully understand the complexities of energy use in building uh, and the way in which that rhetoric has then led to the very problematic exemption of historic buildings from energy performance codes across the country. Um, I and colleagues just published a study on this and we tested the implications in New York City and examined as well how a new generation of greenhouse gas laws are complicating this issue further. Uh, and so, you know, what we found was that the claim that older buildings consume less operating energy does not have a clear evidentiary basis. Building age is not a reliable metric for energy consumption, and the preservation field needs to own up to that. And claiming that embodied energy or embodied carbon makes up for energy performance 
isn't itself a sufficient response because the research on that is lacking as well. So I think when it comes to energy, especially, um, and energy in relationship to climate, the preservation field is talking the talk, but we're not walking the walk. And that's, that's really surprised me because I think we can do so much better. How do we do better? Uh, well, I think part of it is this question of research. So much of what constitutes research in our field um, is done by advocacy organizations that have a mission that's pretty embedded or ingrained with regard to advocating for older buildings. And so research requires us to take a critical and, um, you know, critical lens and be very conscious of bias. And to do so, um, I think we need institutions that are a little outside of that advocacy realm, whether it's universities or, or think tanks. Um, I think we need to engage with other disciplines who do some of this research well. It's one of the reasons why I went back to do a PhD in planning and public policy, because I felt that my tools to ask some of these questions and investigate them fully were very limited um, in my preservation background. <clears throat> and that um, looking to other disciplines really brought uh, a new set of perspectives to my work. Well, I think this is a good place maybe to quick break and then come back and talk about um, these challenges and maybe things that you would change if you could and that kind of work when it comes to preservation policy. And we'll do that right here in PreserveCast. Historic preservation can't happen without skilled tradespeople to perform the work. And there's a critical need right now for those tradespeople. The Campaign for Historic Trades, powered by Preservation Maryland, is working to meet that need by strengthening apprenticeship opportunities within historic trades. In partnership with the National Park Service's Historic Preservation Training Center and Conservation Legacy, the campaign is currently recruiting for NPS Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program, or TTAP. TTAP is an intensive 20-week apprenticeship that provides young adults the chance to learn historic trade skills while working on America's most iconic historic sites. Multiple positions are open for the 2022 season at national parks across the country. Visit historictrades.org for more information on TTAP and how to apply today. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're joined by Dr. Erica Avrami, um, who comes to us from Columbia University. Before we took our break, we were talking about what preservation... Um, we didn't really talk about what preservation gets right, but we certainly talked about what preservation gets wrong and some of the challenges associated with uh, advocacy groups doing studies. Um, so hopefully she doesn't uh, hold it against me as a, someone who runs an advocacy group that's done studies. Um, but I, I know what you're saying. Um, so... If you, I mean, we've talked about the challenges and, and how we could do better. If you could immediately implement or change one policy or, or aspect of the way preservation works, you could just wave a magic wand, understanding that there's a lot of challenges doing these sorts of things. What would be one that you'd be like, immediately, I would fix this? Um, well, I think I, I need to take a, a I, I need to frame that first, right? Okay. So I think, um, I think this you know, this idea of equitable resilience is really uh, critical right now when we think about uh, communities. And, 
you know, how will we adapt and decarbonize the built environment? How will we do that justly? And how can preservationists support those processes through our, our interrogations of social spatial relationships and place attachments? I think that's something we do really well when we dig deep to understand places and that we have the capacity to bring more understanding to questions of not only the historic built environment, but the the built environment writ large. And that um, if we tap those methods, not just the aspirations of saving places, but the methods we use to understand places and how people ascribe value and interact with them, then I think that we can offer so much to uh, the climate question, um, whether that is in doing the adaptation and decarbonization work or in mitigating the effects of displacement. You know, for example, working with uh, both displaced and receiving communities um, when people are are relocated as a result of of climate. Um, So I think there are many good things that we do as preservationists. I don't want to be the the person who's saying, no, no, no. Like there's, this is, I am not a throw the baby out with the bathwater person. Like I I think that there's much um, to, uh, there's so much that we offer in this question. Um, And I'd like to see us really hone and capitalize on that. And I think in terms of the, the, if there were one change I could make in policy pretty quickly, uh, I think so much of what government preservation agencies do, especially at the municipal and state levels is list or designate and then do design review when changes are proposed to a listed or designated place. And they have really limited time and resources to attend to broader systemic issues. Um, who's Again, the who's represented, how can participation be made more just? How can criteria and standards be more inclusive? How do we ensure equitable distribution of benefits? All of those questions um, get uh, sort of shortchanged because of the, the priorities that are placed on the designation and design review. And I think that balance needs to be altered. Um, there's so much emphasis on the site-by-site considerations of what to save and how to preserve and not enough on how policy performs and for whom. And I think if we can do that, we can bring to the table, particularly in the context of climate, a much um, richer set of skills and opportunities for the field. And so I'd like to see that change, whether it's just sort of government agencies making those changes on an operational side or incorporating them into codes um, and legislation. I think government agencies need to take on more of the responsibility of really evaluating um, the impacts of their work, like so many other government agencies are required to do, and not push that on to advocacy organizations, you know, and say like, oh, nope, like, we need to make the case, right? We need to make the case why this is, is good. So who's going to do that? Well, some advocacy organization will get the money to do it or or some state agency will pay, you know, a university to help put the, you know, um, the case together. I think this needs to be internalized within government. Boy, that is a that is almost a magic wand moment, though, getting, I getting government. <laughs> to, I, I, I like the optimism there. But I think uh, when you said maybe it needs to be legislation, I'm like, yeah, I think maybe it does. Um, so. 
Okay, when it comes, there's tons of conversation around Secretary of the Interior standards, and I'm sure yes. like policy wonks listening to this and and preservationists who kind of live in the weeds. Um, you know, for those who don't, the Secretary of the Interior standards is sort of the way in which, well, not only are our, our properties considered, but how they're re- rehabbed and how they're documented, all those sorts of things. And and it's, I mean, the, without kind of putting words in your mouth, I mean, it's it's heavily focused on integrity. Um, and that makes it really hard to list things that maybe aren't perfect, but still have a tremendous story to tell. Um, and we sort of have a one size fits all approach compared to like the UK where they have graded things and, and, and such. Mm-hmm. so when it comes to secretary of the interior standards, a lot of conversation around that, if you could change, you know, one or two aspects of it, what's the thing that you first, you know, you're, you're in charge of, of, right. r- of doing it and you're just get, you get carte blanche to do it. What do you, what do you fix? Um, well, I, uh, such a good question. And and Sarah Bronin was actually a speaker at, uh, at Columbia last week, and she talked a bit about this. Um, and she wrote a chapter about the um, Secretary of the Interior Standards in, in my right. latest volume <clears throat> in the 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 series. So uh, I'm not the the best person to talk about this. But what I think is important is that you know there there are there are the criteria for designation, right? The National Register criteria, for example, of what we designate. And and then there are the standards in terms of what's okay to do to these places that we designate. And and I do think that um, both would warrant from, both would would benefit from, you know, a, a reconsideration. Right. Certainly, as you mentioned earlier, these questions of material integrity, the standards of documentation that are required just for the listing, you know, kind of compel us to think about some of the criteria differently. Um, And, you know, on the Secretary of the Interior Standards, I do think that, uh, you know, the climate crisis will change our built environment dramatically. And Sarah Ronan wrote about this in terms of um, adaptation for floods, for example. Um, I think it, uh, you know, we need to internalize that. And and the Park Service has put together guidelines, right? I, the question is whether the, 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 the guidelines or the ways in which people are, seem to be already working, because we see across the country municipalities that have put together guidelines, for example, for elevating buildings in flood area. How do those get incorporated into the Secretary of Interior Standards, which affects so many municipal ordinances around the country? Many, more than 80% of the municipal ordinances around the, the country, based on a study that I did with colleagues a few years ago. Um, you know, echo, um, you know, some of these standards. So I, you know, that question I think is important. Like how do we look to the standards as thinking toward the future when it comes to the built environment? So whether it's flood adaptation, whether it's deconstruction, because buildings are going to be deconstructed more and more. And, and And if buildings are deconstructed, we're not losing embodied energy. So our embodied energy dis- dis- argument disappears, right? Because you can deconstruct that and still, you know, kind of the, the embodied carbon may still be there in the materials that you salvage. So 
I, I just think that the climate and, and our circular economy in relationship to the built environment are going to compel us to think differently about how we approach these buildings. Um, and I think the standards really need to be about, you know, I, I'd like to see the standards be more about how our choices affect people, not simply how they affect buildings. Yeah, comes comes back to that same silly little uh, you know, anecdote I gave you about preservation groups just showing pictures of buildings, right? Like well, yeah, I mean, that's people are at the that. center of it, right? The before and after photographs, right? It's it's that's been our 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 primary metric. And I again, I I've worked in the not for profit world, worked for advocacy organizations as well. Um, that's a really compelling tool, right, to be able to show those before and after photographs. But um, I think it shortchanges the work that we do in this field. And I'd like to see us um, get beyond that. So we've talked a lot about uh, the challenges. We'll, we'll, be, we'll be a little positive in the way we describe it. We've talked about the challenges. We've talked about things that you would potentially change if you could. Are you optimistic about the future of preservation? And if so, what gives you some hope? I'm absolutely optimistic about the future of preservation because I do think that there is uh, you know, a, a, a horizon um, that, you know, looks toward some of these, these justice questions and looks toward some of these accountability questions, right? I think that um, the more we have these conversations, the more we talk about what it means to preserve, who, um, who is represented, you know, who, and, and that representation is not just sort of who who's represented in the statue, but who's represented in the classroom, who's represented in, in offices, who's represented in firms. I just think that the more we open up that conversation, um, the more we'll be able to consider the implications of the work of preservation and, and not only rely on our intentions, but also really get to uh, improving and expanding our processes and our outcomes. Uh, and so I think, you know, understanding policy, not simply as what we want to do when we save a building, but what actually happens when you save a building and how you do that um, will be critical to the future. And I think that I, what gives me tremendous hope is the fact that students are interested in this. Students welcome the opportunity to think a bit differently about preservation. And, and certainly in the program where I teach, you know, we teach, you know, some of the traditional stuff and we teach this sort of more in the margin stuff because we know that the field is shifting. We know that it's changing and we want students to have a foundation in how the infrastructure of the field has been developed over time, but we also want to equip them with the critical tools and skills to understand how to make change happen. So I think students and that next generation are the thing that give me the most hope. Are there, you know, kind of given the, the field work that some of your students do, um, are there um, projects that kind of exemplify this kind of thing that you're seeing or the thing that gives you hope or the students working on projects that really kind of capture that in a real world setting? Um, absolutely. We, um, I've, 
I've had the great privilege of working with students and various communities through these studios that we do. We've in New York, we've worked in Harlem, we've worked in Red Hook, um, and overseas, we've worked in Haiti, Sierra Leone, Ethiopia. Um, and the ability to be in environments and working with colleagues who have different worldviews, who have different realities, and coming together around that question of heritage and what it means and what it does um, and why we're seeking to preserve it and, and what exactly are we seeking to preserve when we're preserving that place. I think that affords students the opportunity to see how narratives are spatialized in landscape. We worked in Montgomery, Alabama, for example, where students look to see how the narratives of the Confederacy, the narratives of the civil rights movement, the narratives of um, slavery, the narratives of uh, Native American populations, how they were represented in the landscape, whether it was through historic buildings, through plaques, um, through other forms of signage. And that kind of encounter tells a different story than say, you know, reading about a place being historic. It's it's about what the average person experiences on the street and the way in which certain narratives um, get centered in their, their daily life or not. And I think those kinds of approaches um, compel us to reconsider when we look so architecturally or formally at places. We also, in a studio in Harlem, students look specifically at the period of the Harlem Renaissance to understand it as a critical moment when Harlem became a Black Mecca. And we use um, concepts of asset-based community development where we identify critical connector organizations and try to engage with them through interviews and they come to studio reviews. Uh, and they're not just heritage organizations. They're environmental organizations, they're justice organizations, they're housing organizations, they're small business organizations or chambers of commerce. And that opportunity to place the work of historic preservation within broader networks of institutions and organizations and find common ground, I think really equips students to understand preservation is not an end in and of itself but as a means to improving lives and environments through collaboration and cooperation. And that fundamentally means you have to listen, you have to be able to understand these traditional aspirations of preservation, of maintaining as much original form as possible um, in the context of the needs of a community and their values. It'll be exciting to see where these students end up and the work that they they do once they're out out, out in the working field. Um, what's next for you? What are you What are you working on right now? What What can we expect to see from you in the future? Uh, so I think um, I mentioned this study on uh, energy codes and greenhouse gas laws and how we looked at that in New York City. Uh, and I do think that part of what um, is on my horizon is understanding. Um, the built environment, the existing built environment as a, a, a critical place of focus in the climate crisis that historic preservation can lend a tremendous, um, tremendous insights into. And I think 
also because I'm in an architecture school, some of so much of architecture education and engineering education today really focuses on new design and new construction. When the fact of the matter is, is when architects and engineers go out into the world, much high, pretty high percent, um, I think more than 40%, as reported by the American Institute of Architects, of their practice is on existing buildings. And so given the climate crisis, given the need to decarbonize and adapt built environments, I think there's this area of the existing built environment, right? If you think about it as a spectrum between new construction and historic preservation, I think there's this really big gap between the two that isn't getting enough focus. And I think historic preservation, because we understand those materials, because we understand what it is to change and adapt buildings, because we know how to do those histories, because we look at things like place attachment and social value being ascribed to places, we have a lot to lend to the challenges that we face in decarbonization and adaptation of the existing built environment, because we're not going to solve the climate crisis through new design and new construction only. Yeah. Yeah. My, my go-to phrase, I, I don't use the, uh, I have used the greenest building is always is the one that's already standing, but uh, I, uh, I like to say that we're not going to build our way out of the climate crisis. Right. Uh, we're not. And I think that that there is the sense and I think this is a very human thing where it's like, well, we'll just build more and we'll do more and we can kind of just pull ourselves together and build things. And um, sometimes you have to use the things you already have. Um, so uh, this has been really fascinating. We'll have to bring you back as some of these new studies come online. Um, before we go, we ask this of everyone. Normally, uh, pretty challenging. But what's your favorite historic place or site? <laughs> well, uh so I have been asked this question so many times, right? <laughs> particularly because I, I served as the director of the World Monuments Watch for six years. So, you know, hundreds of places would come across my desk every two years. I mean, it's all so fascinating with amazing stories. And so I, I have become quite accustomed to not answering this question because I need to be diplomatic about it. Um, and in fact, I'm working on a book manuscript right now in which I answer that question. So I'm going to leave you hanging and say, when that book comes out, you'll find out. <laughs> well, we'll bring you back and then you can tell us. How about that? Yep. Um, it's been really fun talking with you, eye-opening, and I hope that people are listening. Um, approach this conversation with an open mind and open heart and think about ways in which they can use policy to make preservation better um, and to better the world. Um, and that's the work that you're doing. I appreciate having you on today. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.